This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Fredka. And I'm Mark Ethan. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, depress me again. What the hell is going on? <laughs> well, I wish I could, could not depress you, but unfortunately, we're talking about a very depressing poll, which was just reported by the Wall Street Journal. It, it shows that patriotism, religious faith, interest in having children, interest in community involvement, other priorities that help define the national character for generation are receding in importance for Americans. This is a new Wall Street Journal North Pole. The poll shows that, for example, the number of people who say that patriotism is very important to them. In 1998, it was 70%. Today, 38%. Among young people, 23%. Uh, the number of people who say that religion is very important. 1998 was 62%. Today, just 39%. Number of people who say that having children is important. In 1998, 59%. Today, 30%. And the one rising number seems to be having money is very important to you. In 1998, it was just 31%. It's now 43%. So, you know, it's, it seems like the selfless parts of our national character seem to be declining and the selfish ones seem to be rising. And that's not a good sign for the future of this country. So there was a lot of talk about this poll when it came out and a lot of criticism of the methodology because what it was doing was comparing apples and oranges. The original poll that was taken that was the basis of comparison had been done by phone. This was an internet poll. There's a whole bunch of, of methodological problems with that poll. I think the one thing that we can agree on is that it indicates a real trend line. It may not quite be the crash and burn that this poll looks like, but there's a real trend line. And, and you're exactly right. You can pull the threads. It's selfishness. People don't want to have children. They're worried more about money. They care less about country. They care less about God. They care less about their community. Even if the numbers were half what the Wall Street Journal poll showed, they were still pretty craptastic. And I think one of the things that we don't get the answer to is why. So, I mean, what do you think? Well, that's why we're here to speculate, right? Exactly. <laughs> no information. Why? Why not? <laughs> well, I mean, let's take let's take the having children for example. So, I mean, I, I think that most people don't dispute the more recent numbers, which are very low. I think it's a question of whether the trend lines are as as dramatic as they, whether whether this is a steep cliff or a slow decline. Uh, but the reality is. You know, when it comes to having children, it's borne out by the facts. In 1960, during the baby boom, you know, if the average family had 3.65 children. Today, uh, even in 2009, it was two, which is replacement rate. Today, it's 1.64 per family. Uh, that is a dramatic, dramatic decline. And I think part of it, you know, I, again, pure speculation, but part of it is the is related to the decline in religiosity, the, the decline in people who say that religion is important to them. We used to be uh, governed by a Judeo-Christian religion whose mandate from the book of Genesis was go forth and multiply. 
And we now have replaced that religion with the religion of climate, which says the world is about to end. <laughs> and so and so if the world is ending, you don't want to bring children into it. So, you know, everybody's going to have a religion of some sort because we're all groping for some meaning in life. And it seems like the the religion of the Judeo-Christian God or, you know, the Judeo-Christian and, and Muslim God, if you want, if you want to broaden it, is in decline among young people. But everybody seems really concerned about the the planet ending. And you keep hearing young people saying, oh, we don't want to bring people. It would be irresponsible to bring people into this world that's about to end because of our irresponsible policies. So, you know, I mean, I think, look, I think what you're describing is definitely a, a factor. And I think there are other factors as well. You know, the problem with, with everything is we used to learn that there was virtue in moderation. Now, unfortunately, the only virtue people see is in, in extremism. You know, how does a pill like Greta Thunberg at rise to the stature of a deity in the world because we can't have a normal conversation about the climate changing and what are reasonable efforts to mitigate it. We can't have a normal conversation about social disruptions, about gender. We can't have normal conversations anymore. Everything is is black and white. And I'm not quite sure when we became the fanatical country that we have become, at least in public spaces of debate. Uh, maybe it's social media, but I wanted to talk about another factor that I think is really important, which is education. Yeah. Because we focus a lot on social media being the root of all ills, and God knows it is absolutely a factor and maybe the number one factor. But the fact that people are not taught about American history, about, uh, you know, about history at all, that they aren't taught civics, that, you know, they are taught grievances as opposed to facts, I think is another factor in this decline in patriotism, in optimism, and this growth of selfishness and, you know, me-orientedness. I agree with you 100%. I mean, you know, the 1619 Project and, you know, this rise in critical race theory were basically teaching young people that our nation was founded to perpetuate slavery. You know, that certainly is going to depress patriotism if you if you indoctrinate a generation of children into thinking that this country wasn't founded on the principle of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that all men are created equal, but it was founded to perpetuate slavery, which, which every historian, uh, credible historian, has dismissed as crank history. And the culture is pushing this, too. You've got, you know, Disney has this program called Proud Family, where they basically are pushing this stuff on kids. In fact, let me play a clip from that. This country was built on slavery, which means slaves built this country. Tilled this land from sea to sea to sea. First there was rice, tobacco, sugar cane. Then Whitney did his thing and cotton became king. And we were its soldiers. Four million strong. Fighting for America's freedoms, even though we remained America's slaves. slaves. Built this country. The descendants of slaves continue to build this. Slaves built this country. And we, the descendants of slaves in America, have earned reparations for their suffering. And continue to earn reparations every moment we spend submerged in the system. Systemic prejudice, racism, and white supremacy that America was founded with and still has not atoned for. Slaves built this country. So, you know, you've got kids imbibing this on Disney Plus, and then, you know, you've got institutions like the like the New York Times posted a video a couple of years ago, you know, challenging the mythology of American greatness. And they said America may have once been the greatest, but today we're just okay. 
this this is what our culture is teaching people, which is teaching young people. And we need to push back on this. We need to, this is a warning sign for us that we need to, you know, we need to be teaching everyone the full history of the United States, including the failings of our of our country and the mistakes we made and and the original sin of slavery and the the history of racism. That's not the defining characteristic of this country. This is the country that, you know, conquered Nazism and conquered communism and liberated millions of people around the world and created the most the most upwardly mobile society in human history. That's got to be taught too. And if you don't teach people that, and you teach people that, you know, that basically we're, we're a bunch of systemic racists, irredeemable racists, then patriotism is going to go down. And, and that, that's a problem for our society going forward. But I mean, that's it, isn't it? You know, if you feel like we're a horrible country, if you feel like we were founded on these terrible, terrible principles, then of course you're not optimistic. You don't want to bring children into the world. And you can believe, you know, as well that, that God has failed you. God has not God has not solved these problems. So what is the value of these ideas? The problem for me is that the counter narrative is almost equally ridiculous. You know, uh, God, guns and country. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. It's a slogan. But at the end of the day, there needs to be a conversation. And one of the things that we get into with our guest is, is that because there is so little conversation, because we have become a country that spends all of its time talking to people just like ourselves. So we, you know, we are finding people who are like, yeah, baby, that's totally right. Of course, I agree. No, you don't spend time with people who are different from you. And you not, it's not even that you don't don't see their perspective. It is that you have no respect for them or their ideas. They are not even part of your calculus. And and again, in a country like that, duh. Yeah, you're right. You don't feel optimistic about the future. Well, and also the, the danger of it is that if you, if you don't feel optimistic about the future and you don't think America is a great country, then you're not willing to defend it. And you're not willing to defend our ideals on the world stage. You and I are foreign policy geeks. I mean, you know, who Mike Gallagher was on our podcast. And one of the things he said was uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher, who's the chairman of the uh, House, uh, the new House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. He said, if you were our enemy, what, what's part of your strategy to destroy America, to convince us we're not the good guys? You know, that, that's what the Chinese Communist Party wants to do, because they're in a global competition with us for dominance of the world, whether whether the world is going to be dominated by liberal democracy and freedom and opportunity and free enterprise, or whether the world is going to be dominated by the Chinese Communist Party and its ideology. And they're dead serious about, about displacing us around the world and displacing our principles. And if we don't think we're the good guys, if we're the country founded to perpetuate slavery, you know, that's coming straight out of the CCP propaganda department. And that's what they want us to believe, because then we're not willing to risk anything. We're not willing to put anything on the line to defend our values. If we had believed that as a country, you know, 60, 70 years ago, then maybe we wouldn't have taken on Nazi Germany, or we wouldn't have taken on the, the Cold War and won it. And millions of people wouldn't be free today. This decline in patriotism isn't just a, oh, it's too bad that we don't love our country as much as we used to. This is a threat to our right. national and that's security. why we've seen recruitment numbers drop. And that's why yes. we should ban TikTok. We always come back to the same thing. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. We can have a show on fishing. And we would... <laughs> we would 
coming back to this. It's time to bring on our guest. Uh, and he's our first, first time with us, uh, although um, we've both followed his work for a really long time. Patrick Ruffini is a pollster. He's also the co-founder of Echelon Insights, which is a polling and analytics firm. He began his career working for George W. Bush uh, at the RNC and then on his re-election campaign and in his administration. And he is the author of a forthcoming book, Party of the People, Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition Remaking the GOP. Here's our interview. Well, Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Great to have you. So there's this new Wall Street Journal poll, which everyone has their hair on fire about, saying that patriotism and religiosity and childbearing and community involvement are are down in the dumps, have collapsed over a period of uh, two decades or more. And you had a substack analysis of this where you said if you had been presented with these results in your polling firm, you would have told the analyst to go back and check the numbers. Tell us why you're skeptical of these numbers. Well, I think the thing that really jumped out at me was this finding that just four years ago, 62% of Americans said that community involvement was very important to them. And this year, only 27% said that was true. And immediately, I jumped, that, that jumped out at me as like, well, that's, that's interesting. On the one hand, right, we're wired to believe this declinist narrative that everything's going down the tubes. And um, in some ways, that's true, right? I mean, if you look at the Gallup trend line on patriotism, you look at the trend lines on religiosity, all of these trends have been going down for quite some time. But this idea of a 35-point drop in just four years, that was something that, that, that just strikes me as implausible. And I think, um, you know, it says something that this chart went viral. It says something about really how we're wired to consume information, uh, what information spreads, that the, the results that seem very dramatic or very surprising, you know, get outsized play. So here's what was actually going on with that. And, you know, as I dug deep into uh, the methodology of the survey, um, it turns out the surveys were not conducted the exact same way from 2019 to today. So they last conducted this survey in 2019. They redid it in 2023. And that's that's something you do if you want to measure kind of these trends over time. And what I found was that the survey that was conducted just now uh, was conducted online. The survey that was conducted four years ago and prior to that was conducted over the phone. Now, why should that matter? Why is this technical detail so important? Uh, It's important because um, of something called mode effects, Uh, the idea that if you're answering a survey in a certain format, in a certain way, you're going to answer differently. And particularly on, um, you know, what we would term uh, socially desirable types of characteristics or values, things like I am a person who is very highly involved in my community. I am patriotic. I go to church. Um, All of those things are things you are more likely to say to a telephone interviewer over the phone than if you're sort of answering privately and anonymously um, not facing another person directly when you're doing it. And so that really, I think, a- explains a lot of the difference. I don't disagree that, you know, maybe the long-term, the long-term trend line, right, has been for a lot of these uh, values, questions to go down over time. 
Um, but the sort of hair on fire moment of, oh my gosh, it's it's declined by 35 points. Um, patriotism has declined by 23 points in the, just the last four years. Um, that's what I take issue with. The sort of idea that we're overhyping these trends because of a change in how the survey questions were asked um, in the last two uh, two, two times. So you, you wrote on your stub sack that basically what that means is that the 2023 survey probably does a better job of revealing the true state of patriotism, religiosity, community involvement, and so forth. So the bad news is the current numbers that show it at the very low levels is accurate. It's just that the earlier numbers were inflated and so the decline is not as yeah. precipitous. I, I think that's right. You're, that's you're, not good. You're, no, I mean, it's not good, but it, it's not good. Um, but at the same time, look, I, as I mentioned, I mentioned the Gallup data earlier, right? And the Gallup data earlier shows the steady, slight, you know, kind of, I think it was 70% said patriotism or something. The equivalent measure was very important to them four years ago, and now it's 65%. So that's not good news, right? That's not good news. I mean, because of technology, um, you know, the technology wasn't around in 1990, 1999 or 1998, when they, I think, when they first asked these questions. So we don't really know <laughs> sort of what, you know, as far as this survey goes, we don't really know what's high, what's low. Um, and what would be a number that's in the tubes versus what, what would be a number that would be good? Um, you know, it's just it was probably the earlier waves were slightly inflated. We're, we're probably pretty inflated. But the trend line is down, but it's modestly down, right? It's not uh, it's not crashing and burning um, like this poll suggests. So I want to dig a little bit deeper because there's some confirmation bias in the fact that this poll went viral, right? It is particularly for political elites, for journalists, for the people who who do dominate the chattering classes. This is just a confirmation that the country's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, whether it's the fascists are on the march or it's the universities are now ruined or whatever your attitude, this poll seemed to confirm it. But what I thought was really interesting in the in your Substack is that you really dig in much further and talk about you know, where the divisions are, but also where there is sort of a vast gray area between the confirmed you know right wing fringe and the confirmed left wing fringe. Can you talk a little bit about what you see as you know real trend lines in America? Yeah, sure. I think that your point about confirmation bias is exactly right. I highlighted a Michael Schellenberger tweet that, um, you know, he was going off on, well, this confirms everything that, um, let's say, Jonathan Haidt has been saying about teen mental health and the teen mental health crisis and social media. And, you know, the facts are that the universities are a certain way. And, 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 and I, I know people on the left, right, jumped on it as a fact of this is a, this is a function of late stage capitalism. Um, when you get a result like this, it can be tempting to jump on it and to import your own worldview and try to figure out, um, you know, what what is the cause? The numbers themselves, the, the certainly they certainly leave room for interpretation. Um, you can certainly speculate as to what you think the cause of a certain trend may be, but the numbers themselves do not tell us what the underlying causes are. They are just numbers. They are just lines on a trend line. And, um, you know, it's up to us to try to, you know, whether we're trying to speculate about them or whether, you know, perhaps we 
can run some more advanced academic experiments to actually figure out what the underlying causes of some of these things are. But no one is going to actually come up with the underlying cause in a tweet thread. Um, that sort of your immediate hot take uh, reaction uh, to seeing this data. Um, what I do think we can say, I think there have been generational uh, trends. So a lot of this is generationally driven in terms of we're seeing the numbers increasingly drop precipitously more on a lot of these measures among younger younger uh, generations in particular, particularly on patriotism and particularly on the well-confirmed and well-observed trends about religiosity. Um, where you're seeing, you know, much younger respondents being much less religious than they have been in the past. It's not that young people are taking over. In fact, young people are less of a share of the population now than they were 20, 30 years ago. Um, with the rise of the baby boom and sort of the, the, the trends there, the population is getting older, but the levels uh, of all of these things among younger people have been a lot lower. So help me square this circle because you mentioned the Gallup poll before. And the Gallup poll shows that 65% of Americans say they are extremely or very proud to be American. The Wall Street Journal poll says that 38% of respondents said patriotism was very important to them. Um, that's a 28 point difference. Like if 65% of the country thinks patriotism is important, I'm not setting my hair on fire. If 38% <laughs> only think that the, that being patriotic is important, I've got my lighter here. <laughs> and especially with 23% of younger people. I mean, where, where do you think we really are on these questions? I don't think you should, you know, be carrying around the lighter with, with an eye towards lighting yourself on fire. <laughs> Let me just say that. Um, it, you know, I, I think that there are so many th things that it could be from Gallup still uses telephone interviewers, right? And you could say, well, maybe that's not the best way of asking the questions, but they've been around for a while, right? So if you want a trend line, you really do have to ask the same questions the same way using the same methods over time. So, um, But the telephone inflates it, right? It inflates it. But I would maybe take issue slightly with, you know, we can say if it's 65%, um, it's good. And if it's if it's a certain percentage, it's, it's not good. I mean, I would say, you know, 65% is not as good as where we were after 9-11 when we were at 90% on that measure, right? So um, you could make an argument for why it's good. You could make an argument for why it's bad. As far as the 65 versus 38 number, lots of things are going on there, potentially. Um, you've got the phone versus online difference. You've got the question being worded differently. I believe, I, I believe it's on the Gallup measure that there is an extremely, there's an extremely a proud or a very proud category, whereas on the um, Wall Street Journal poll, there's only a very proud. Um, that, just by offering those options, right, that gives people more room to identify at those, at those sort of, at that higher tier or higher rate. Um, so there are just so many things about how a question can be worded that can produce just dramatically different results across surveys um, that maybe reflect the same underlying reality. 
right? I mean, it's not that you know these 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 polls surveyed two dramatically different universes of people. It's that um, you know just the way they were worded, the options that were presented to people, and how they were conducted yielded different results. So let's talk a little bit about some of the underlying questions because. How you react to this in some ways does come down to politics, or maybe I should just say how I react to this just comes down to politics, and I suspect I'm not much different from a lot of people. You look in the post that we mentioned about where you analyze and and dive a little bit deeper into some of the background issues. You use expressions that I I love being a Middle East person, where you talk about you know the people on the on either side of the spectrum who either are solid um, left wing or who are solid right wing, and you find you described it as finding Assad-like margins for Donald Trump or or Joe Biden, which is great. But one of the things that I found reassuring in what you wrote was was this gray area, right? You very nicely color everything, but, you know, the, the GOP is all red and the Democrats are all blue, and then there's this gray in the middle. These are the persuadables. These are the people who actually aren't going to uh, the polling booth or, you know, down to their community center with a fixed idea. They're interested in conversation, they're interested in issues, and they may actually change their mind. That seems, other than white college-educated Americans, most people in your chart, and we'll link to it for everybody, are actually persuadable. Yeah, that's that's really an important thing to note, because if you spend your life on social media, if you spend your life on Twitter... Everything is a war every single day, 24-7, um, politically, right? And, and you, you very rarely encounter people who are genuinely conflicted on the issues or on any given issues, whether it's guns, abortion, uh, any and all of the above. And that makes sense because if you're, again, if you're engaging in these public spaces, you are somebody who is highly politically engaged. You are somebody who knows a lot about the issues, and you've probably long since made up your mind. The people who are not engaged in these spaces are, you know, overwhelmingly people who don't live and breathe politics twenty four seven. They're working class, defined as not having a college degree, um, so they're just less interested in politics generally. They turn out. Uh, you know, maybe they'll turn out in presidential elections, but not necessarily in midterm elections or in special elections. All the things that, you know, political Twitter is obsessed over. Um, and what you find when you actually break down these people by demographic group is that, the, that there are vast demographic differences by race. You really uh, see people you know, who are not white um, specifically are much, much more likely not to have these sort of extremely hyper-polarized views on either extreme of the political spectrum. That they answer, the, when they answer lots and lots of issue questions on a survey, they're kind of clustered in the middle. Meanwhile, whites, but specifically whites with college degrees, have a majority of people who are clustered on these ideological extremes, either very um, far to the left or very far to the right. Um, they're actually both pretty evenly matched. The far left and the far right are pretty evenly matched. And you have a much smaller space in the middle. Um, so in that post, that's what I was trying to, to trying to get at, that the reality that, you know, maybe you and I experience day to day in political conversation on, on Twitter is just very, very different than... Um, what 
most <laughs> what the sort of the average swing voter is the information experience information environment that the average swing voter is inhabiting and how they view uh, how they view these issues. And you're right that there is a large persuadable middle that we often ignore based on because of this narrative that we're so polarized, elections are decided by one or two percentage points. And we just often ignore the opportunities that we have to persuade those folks in the middle. So one of the numbers I want to want to tease out with you is this number on and the importance of having children, which according to the Wall Street Journal numbers went from 59% in 1998 to just 30% today of that young people think it's having, having children is important. That's sort of borne out by the reality of what's happening. I mean, in, in 1960, yeah. we had almost four average of, you know, 3.65 children per woman in the country. And in 1998, we were at replacement rate at two, two, you know, we're down to 1.64 children per woman in this country. So we're not even replacing ourselves. That decline seems to be validated by the reality that young people aren't replacing themselves today. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of interesting demographic data, and we don't almost don't need to survey it, right? Because as you know, like we have very good demographic data. We we know how many children are being born in the United States every year. But I, I think that the, the the finding in the survey about uh, young people, it mattering less, and I don't think they broke it out by young people specifically, but it mat- this mattering less to people is almost incidental to the reality that's actually going on. I think it just goes to show, like, look, a lot of what was in that chart was maybe directionally accurate. Um, yeah, there are things I would, you know, take issue with entirely, like community involvement thing. Everything else is is confirmed in some form by other data sources. The reason why this, this particular poll, and not others, and not the Gallup data, and not uh, everything else, all right, that have shown these basically the same trends took off is because the magnitude was so, the, the shift was so... Uh, dramatic and severe in this survey, as opposed to the other ones, which have mostly shown a gradual shift of maybe five points in the last four years. That's not something we're going to write headlines about. Um, So it it was very successful in getting a message across about something that might actually be happening. But the issue I have with it is it's not an accurate, you know, in, in terms of the severity of the problem. It sort of overstates maybe the severity of the decline, at, let's say, over the last few years. But of course, the, the strange thing to me is, you know, if in fact the hair on fire aspect of this is among the, the demographic that you talk about, right? Yes, okay, we see the, the trend lines. Everybody, everybody is less confident. People are having less children. People are less patriotic. People are more obsessed about their own wellness and less interested in work. What's strange to me is how the extreme views of elites have filtered down in terms of attitudes, right? So, you know, of course, you know, on the Upper West Side, we know, you know, people are not having children. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle think they shouldn't have any more than two children because the world can't tolerate it. But how has this filtered down even to the persuadable middle such that we see these trends taking hold, not only among those elites who, you know, for whom there's very little gray area, but for pretty much everybody. 
So I think there's a lot to that, right? Because things have gotten a lot more polarized. There was this famous Pew chart that I highlighted uh, recently that was that really kind of looked at there used to be a lot more overlap between Republicans and Democrats in terms of how they viewed the issues. Um, so, you know, the sort of average Democrat was not really that far to the left of the average Republican just 20 years ago. And now um, there's very little overlap. Uh, now it's gotten to an extreme, a, a, an absolute to an extreme point among elites, right? But it's still um, at a more muted point among, let's say, the rank and file, right? The rank and file are still pretty ideologically open and ambidextrous and, and um, you know, can subscribe to points of view across the political spectrum. But that's happening, generally speaking, a lot less. What I'm interested in, it though, is how, you know, this filters into behavior. And I was struck in a recent focus group that I moderated that um, speaking to a woman that was a diehard MAGA, almost, you know, bought, bought into every conspiracy theory, right, that was out there around 2020, around vac anti-vax stuff, everything. And the thing that she said that struck me was the belief that, you know, when we were talking about kind of this idea that, yeah, there are maybe swing voters in the middle that the Republican Party needs to persuade. And she said back to me, I don't ever really see that. All I see is people like me and then people on the opposite side of it you know, waving their pride flags or, or doing things um, on the far left side of the political spectrum. And I thought that was a very telling comment, because if you don't actually believe, um, because of the media environment, that there are people in the middle to persuade, then I think that inspires a certain you know, it, it, it sort of radicalizes you. It, it, um, it inspires a, a behavior that I think is very different um, than, um, than you would if you actually encountered more folks who are in the middle. Um, and I think that, you know, th that sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? We, be, we ourselves become more extreme because we perceive there are not others who can be won over through persuasion. What you're saying reminds me of a book that was written the last few years by our colleague Charles Murray, Coming Apart, right? And, and of course, the, the, the theme in the book was that fewer and fewer people know other people who are not like them. That now it is, you know, if you have a PhD, you're more likely to be married to someone with a master's or a PhD. If you are a school teacher, you're probably not going to be married to a physician. You know, that, and that those things underscore exactly what you talked about, which is, no, of course not. I don't, I don't think about persuading people because I don't actually meet those people. That, I, think that, I think you're right that that is hugely important. Yeah, I think that is a real life manifestation of everything he talks about uh, in coming apart. Um, and uh, like I said, I, I mean, I think I, I actually um, I have a book, right? <laughs> and I talk a lot about I actually do talk a lot about coming apart in the book um, in particular, you know, as it relates to the sort of, you know, the almost these two Americas that we now inhabit, um, the sort of working class America that surged towards Trump in the 2016 and 20 election, 2020 elections and a more college educated cosmopolitan America that turned 
against him and turned against the Republican Party in those years. And uh, in particular, the geographic factor, right, in that it's not about necessarily you yourself possessing a certain set of demographic characteristics, although that's part of it, in terms of you yourself having a college degree. What actually matters is you're surrounded by people <laughs> who, um, you know, sh all share a particular set of demographic characteristics and you zoom to the left or you zoom to the right based on the signals that you're getting. Um, you know, what I kind of, I think the argument that, you know, I make is this has inspired all sorts of bad behavior, right? In And I'm not talking bad behavior among elites. I'm also talking about bad behavior, frankly, at the everyday voter level, uh, where again, if you yourself are not really encountering people, with these different beliefs, you're not necessarily incentivized to act kindly towards them. Uh, you're not, uh, you know, you're not uh, inspired to give them the benefit of the doubt, perhaps. And I just think right, that's, they're dehumanized. that's very sad. Yep. It's not just demographic, though. It's ideological. So, I mean, you know, with the rise of social media and the rise of competing news networks and news sources, you know, there's a certain segment of the population only watches Fox News and a certain segment of the population only watches MSNBC and a certain segment of the population reads the Washington Post and a certain segment of the population reads, you know, conservative newspapers. And you're even seeing it now where, you know, in California, they, they ran out of U-Hauls. <laughs> because so many people are leaving California and and New York and moving to Florida and Texas, so we're we're getting towards a country where we're we don't we don't even live together anymore. <laughs> it's 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 really you know these these problems are going to get worse, aren't they? Uh, I think look, I think they have gotten worse. Whether or not that will continue, have we reached some sort of equilibrium point? I mean, I, I wouldn't bet on it. I would bet on polarization continuing to get worse or continuing to uh, become more important. Um, where I think really the real jumping off point, um, you know, and I'm somebody who has made my career, um, you know, starting out and doing um, digital politics and doing things um, online is sort of all, with the uh, with the importance of the Internet rising, um, particularly between the 2000 and 2004 elections. That's when you started to see a lot of this polarization, regional polarization, education polarization, really get going. And obviously, it was supercharged, and you know, uh, you know, Trump threw a match on it in 2016, absolutely. But it really got going with the rise of alternative cable news outlets for different partisan camps um, that we really saw take off around that period of time. And also with the rise of the internet, um, where you can spend practically your entire day uh, immersed in an information environment um, that completely confirms what you're already predisposed to believe. And, and also, I, and I don't know which is the chicken and which is the egg here, but we also seem to be in a politics of base maximalization versus the old model of, you know, you, you, they used to be if you wanted to get your party's nomination, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you ran in the primary to the left or to the right to get your base, and then you tacked to the center to win over the persuadables. And it seems like that model has been thrown out the window. And now everybody's just trying to hype up their base and throw enough red meat out into their base and get their base to turn out more than the other. And the people in the middle are sort of told to, 
you know, go pound sand. I mean, if you just look at the polls right now, most polls, though Trump is inching up you know, towards the, the 50 percent mark. But I mean, until recently, a majority of Republicans wanted somebody other than Trump. Uh, polls show that a majority of Democrats want somebody other than Biden. And yet we're looking like we're going to get another Biden-Trump matchup. So it seems like the majority doesn't really matter anymore. I think it does and it doesn't. I think the the swing voter remains is much smaller, is a much smaller group than it was maybe 20 years ago. Um, very in terms of much, you know, we don't have landslide elections anymore. Um, people vote largely the same way for Congress and for the presidency. Um, but uh, the paradox of that is that the people who actually do matter more. The individuals who actually will matter more if they're five percent of the electorate as opposed to when they were twenty percent of the electorate. In fact, they matter just as much, right? But um, it's just a much narrower and narrower slice of people to begin with. You also have the fact, and um, liberals like to say this is because of gerrymandering, but you also have the fact that most, um, because of this geographic polarization. Most members of Congress are elected in districts where there's absolutely no chance that either a Democrat or Republican will beat them, that if they're going to get beat, it's going to be in the primary. And what does that mean? Well, I mean, it incentivizes all the sorts of behaviors that you talk about, where my incentives are all mostly focused for the vast majority of Republicans uh, or Democrats who are elected to Congress. They're all focused on holding my base. And you only have a very, very tiny sliver of members who come from genuinely competitive districts who are concerned about winning over the middle. So within the Democratic caucus, within the Republican caucus, right, with, you know, whoever is governing at the time, those groups are absolutely dominated by people, right, who only are accountable to primary electorates. And that's a problem. And of course, the right conclusion for those of us in, at least in Max and my world, who are really about trying to persuade people about good ideas, good policies, the right direction for our country, the right principles, the, we should be focused on trying to expand our communication with people who are persuadable, to expand our conversation with people who haven't already decided the second they wake up in the morning. But of course, even there, I think it's become harder and harder for us. It's really, it's a bummer. We have not figured out how to talk to people who are persuadable. And that should really be for Washington, for people who are about ideas, who are about good policy. We should be focused much more on that. That's something for all of us to work on. Yeah, and I, I 100% agree with that. I think the challenge, though, is you don't get a ton of great feedback necessarily when you try to do that. Um, and what I mean by that is it's back to the problem of, well, the people who are more pers- are actually persuadable in elections, right, who will actually from time to time turn out and vote, aren't the ones who are, you know, applauding you, right, most loudly, um, or, who are, or who are applauding any given policy idea very loudly because they're not as engaged on a daily basis. And so the cheering sections, the respective left and right cheering sections, are the ones that tend to dominate. And again, it's those perverse incentives that I think people have to, you know, intending to, I think fully intending to 
uh, say, go out and win a majority and be focused on winning 50% plus one and, and being able to unite, let's say, the right with the center, um, that um, you have people who are very intentionally start out trying to do that. And then it devolves into, well, I said this thing that really fired up the base and my donations really went up. My page views really went up. Um, meanwhile, those people in the middle didn't seem that engaged or enthused or interested. The problem is, the problem with all of that is they do show up in elections, right? Um, so the, the daily feedback mechanisms that we have are not necessarily very good or very well attuned, you know, to getting that feedback um, and doing that communication and persuasion to the middle. So exit question for me, we're all political people here. And so, of course, we devolved this into a discussion of politics and persuasion. Uh, but it's really, there's a, these, this poll is about culture to a large extent, too. And you know, we, our culture is becoming one in which Americans and particularly younger people value money more than God, value themselves rather than having children, are less patriotic. And you, one of the things you pointed out in your criticism of the poll is that it's utterly silent on the explanations for why. As a pollster, how do, how do we get to, is there a way through polling to find out what the reasons for these declines are so that, you know, we can address them as a society? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's always more, it's always harder. It's harder than it looks. It's, it's more complex than it looks. And, you know, there are methods, but I think, you know, particularly you have to look at people um, who, let's say, have, you know, kind of very specifically had children, aren't having children, um, and break it down by specific behaviors that people have um, and see what are the trend lines specifically among those people. Um, you know, particularly, I thought the work of, um, you know, in recent weeks that Jonathan Haidt has been doing specifically highlighting these issues with the rise of, um, you know, mental health problems among teens, specifically looking at the period of time in 2010 when social media became ubiquitous. Um, you know, I think that kind of analysis is very valuable because you're trying to marry up things that, um, you know, t you know you're, you're either trying to look at, you um, trends over time based on partisanship or based on uh, gender or other behaviors or other, you know, kind of demographic behaviors um, and looking at specific shifts that happen at specific points in time. And I think that that, that has been um, that has certainly been an interesting debate, but it's still pretty elusive. Right. It's still like we don't necessarily know that, OK, it's it's specifically the rise of social media or it's something else that um, that is causing that. But it's definitely probably not the work of just one survey. It's going to, um, you know, it really takes a sustained effort over time uh, to figure out a lot of these questions. Patrick, thank you. We've kept you for longer than we promised, but this was you know, a fascinating and I think really an important conversation. There's a lot of digging we all need to do in order to figure out not just what's behind this, but how better to to communicate understanding it. Thank you. Thank you. This is this is such a great, uh, very thoughtful discussion. I don't, not, you don't know <laughs> Thank you for joining Thanks us. Thanks a ton. <laughs> Take care. Have a wonderful weekend. Here's the interesting thing about these polling numbers. Our former leader Arthur Brooks. He's become a uh, 
a, a happiness guru. He's got a class at Harvard on, on happiness, and it's the most oversubscribed class at Harvard Business School. And he says the four keys to happiness are faith, family, community, and work. And this poll shows basically that all of those are in decline <laughs> in the United States today. Uh, you can throw in patriotism and community because I think patriotism is a form of community involvement because it's we believe our country, if we're patriotic, we're all in a, especially in America, in a joint project to advance liberty in our way of life around the world. All of that's going downhill. I, I asked Arthur if he was worried about this poll, and he was surprisingly not. He basically said that, look, we've seen this rodeo before. In the 1970s, we had the hippies, radicals, bombings, McGovern, Nixon, and then all of a sudden Ronald Reagan came along and it was morning in America again. And, you know, these things go in cycles that all we need is one great leader to step forward and it'll turn things around again. And we went from the 70s from thinking that America was in in decline to uh, thinking that America was to conquering communism and winning the Cold War. So he's he's surprisingly optimistic despite these pessimistic numbers. I don't know. What do you think, Danny? Uh, Well, yeah, look, I mean... (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm never as optimistic as Arthur. Maybe because he's more uh, maybe because he's more godly than I am. God knows, I have no idea why. But I, I I'm not as optimistic as he is. And part of the reason for that, I think, is just because I'm so like you, so immersed in the swamp that is Washington D.C. Um, you know, we are we are not among those people we were just talking about. We're not we're not among those gray area people that Patrick described to us. We are we are in that super, super small area of white college educated people who are you know, in one camp or the other with uh, with nobody bothering to have a, a civil conversation among them. Now, I know you do that and I try to do that as well. But you get swept up, and I have to say, none of that makes me feel optimistic. Watching Donald Trump get indicted doesn't make me feel optimistic. Watching arguments about who should go to school and who should use what bathroom, I find exhausting. So no, I'm not. I'm not as optimistic at all. I've always thought that we're one great leader away. Uh, I agree with Arthur. Uh, we can. These things can be turned around, and quite frankly, you know, they have to be turned around because this is not good where we are right now. I'm a big believer that, you know, we're, we're not leftists. We don't believe that there's a there's a dialectic of history that, that's inexorably going in a certain direction. Uh, history is decided by leaders. If we had come out of the 70s with different leadership, then we really could have declined. It could have been a very bad outcome in the 1980s. It took a great leader to do that. So, you know, it's in, in an ironic way, our conversation about the culture turned into a conversation about politics. But maybe that's the right that was the right direction to take it in because it requires us getting our politics right to fix these problems. Well, I hope you're right and I'm wrong. That would be what I would like. Me too. So, <laughs> from from your mouth to God's ears, as we say. <laughs> and I usually am, Danny. So that you you can have confidence in that. And on that very typical, very expected note. Optimistic note. (laughs) Thank you, everybody, for listening. Don't hesitate to share your views with us as well. Take care. Take care. We'll see you next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.